0: Um, foresight an entrepreneur must have to be able to make a valid judgment. Should I keep that arm of my operation in my firm or should I spin it off? Or a similar type of Changes in the capital structure of the operation, this we call vertical I'm sorry this we call horizontal arbitrage, and then we had the vertical and the horizontal arbitrage and there's a third one which then uh, tries to make the uh, the uh, uh, spread uh, narrower. So these uh, three different types of arbitrage call for different straddles. I'm not going to go through all all the uh, details of this. I just mentioned that uh, even a single problem such as that of establishing the ceiling of the Range in which the rate of interest varies is, is a more complex thing than just one single arbitrage. It, you could break it down to three in this example, and uh, what you have to see is that these three different arbitrage operations are not separated. separated Uh, you do one first and then you do the other and then you do the third or a different order because they are all being done simultaneously and continuously as you go so uh, we just separate them for the purposes of discussing them and studying them but really in practice these arbitrage operations are simultaneous and continuous, and the outcome is the important thing which is uh, uh, forming the uh, uh, ceiling for the rate of uh, range within which the rate of interest changes, <coughs> but if you want to formulate it in terms of the of the uh, the bond price, then it's going to be the floor, right? Because it's just the opposite. Now, I should say a few words about the sovereignty of the saver. Uh, You see, behind all this activity of the bondholder, of the entrepreneur, and a lot of other participants of the uh, drama, let's call it drama, of economics, economic changes, production, and so on, is the saver. The saver is the person who makes it all possible, because it is These are her savings, which will pay for the plant and equipment of the entrepreneur. Will pay for the supplies. Will pay for labor and so on. So this is this is an assumption that there is some saving. If there's no saving, then there is no production, and probably it's going to be a. What's the name for for the economy, which is you gather food and don't produce anything, you just uh, scurry around and find the There's a word for that Hunter-gatherer? Hunter-gatherer. Hunter-gatherer. Yeah, Yeah. hunting (laughs) and (laughs) gathering. So, the saving is the driving force and This is something where Keynesian economics fails miserably, because Keynesians, Keynes himself and all his followers, just belittle the act of saving, and they believe that saving can be replaced by artificially manufactured credit, which is, of course, uh, completely wrong. You have to have saving, and it's important to keep the order. Saving must precede spending. You cannot spend before you save. Temporarily, when the economy is already well-developed, it is possible that you spend before you save, because the saving is already there in the form of accumulated capital. But the danger is that you overreach yourself and you spend more and then it's no longer capital accumulation but capital erosion or even capital destruction and this is very dangerous because the uh, it's insidious there is no indicator which shows at what point are we now, as far as capital accounts are concerned? This is something the entrepreneur has to feel instinctively, and there, I don't think even a computer could, a computer program uh, could do that for you because it's just far too complex for that. And uh, That indicator would show and there should be a red light somewhere blinking that uh, Careful now you have overstepped the limits. You are now actually consuming capital and when that happens, this is a dangerous signal because when you are consuming capital, you are uh, actually destroying the chances of a successful productive operation. So uh, for this reason, I would say the best rule of thumb is you always keep adding to your capital and in practice this has to do with the depreciation quotas. As you probably know, this is a bookkeeping concept depreciation quota, when as an entrepreneur you buy an equipment, tool, tool of production. You always attach a number to it which gives you the expected life of this. No equipment would last forever, even with capital maintenance it wouldn't. So, sooner or later, you've got to scrap this equipment, and then you just, as an entrepreneur, you've got to put a number on it, and this is good for five years, another one may be good for 20 years, and so on. Now, even that is not sufficient. It means that after 10 or 20 years, you have to scrap it and replace it with a new one. But there is the problem of capital maintenance. You've got to maintain this. There is wear and tear (coughs) in use. And when uh, you are using capital equipment, that's that's true for buildings as well. Plants, they are not forever either, but they might have a longer, uh, uh, a factory building might be good for 50 years or something. Uh, whereas a, a piece of equipment, a tool, is only for 15 years. And that you have to maintain these factors of production, which means you do the necessary repairs, you keep them in good running order, you check them, and so on and so forth. But now, the uh, accounting side of this comes, which means that you put a depreciation quota on every single equipment you have under your control as an entrepreneur. And what that means is that you have to put aside a sum of money which after twenty years, say, if that's the life Uh, the maximum life of this piece of equipment after 20 years will have the complete price of the replacement because at that time you've got to scrap this. It's no longer good, not just because it's worn, it's uh, too frequent repairs make it unserviceable, but also because the state of art has moved ahead, they are obsolete, they get obsolete, because in the meantime they invent, they introduce new improvements, they maybe just come up with a completely different type of tool doing the same job, or maybe automated from hand uh, cranks, you went to electric motors, you uh, doing the uh, lid or drill or whatever, and therefore there is necessity of putting money aside, and this is called depreciation fund. You've got to put money aside that you will be able to purchase the new equipment when this thing is finished. It has uh, outlived its usefulness, its scrap, and the new equipment you buy and put in place. But if you don't put the money aside over a period of years, then, then you, you will face a problem because you will have to buy a new equipment and you don't have the funds now why is it called depreciation? because mentally we think of the value of this piece of tool, say that it's getting depreciated over use so if it's twenty years, the lifetime then we think of its value as a diminishing curve which goes to zero in twenty years. Now obviously you can do this in many different ways. You can depreciate along a curve like this, which means that the first few years it's losing very little of its value. But then it will lose a lot of value towards the end of its useful life. Or you can depreciate along a straight line. This very often, uh, this is the simplest uh, uh, for the bookkeeper, obviously, uh, and in many cases it will be sufficient. It will be a good, good way of doing it. But not necessarily. You just have to know exactly uh, your trade so well that you will be able to make a decision. And then another way of depreciating is that you depreciate very fast first and less and less fast towards the end. So as I say, there are different ways of depreciation and different entrepreneurs using different methods in the same type of production uh, are competing in that sense as well. Their methods of depreciating their equipment, their plant, or whatever they need as factors of production is going to influence the final outcome. So uh, this is something that you have to keep in mind, The the rate of depreciation or the method of depreciation. This is the job of the entrepreneur, and the successful entrepreneur will do this uh, better than the rest of them. And and if if he doesn't care, then he will slip behind, because there will be others who realize something. For instance, this also involves a little bit of foresight. What Other new machinery are on the blueprint, on the drawing boards, in those companies which produce uh, uh, machinery, right? They are constantly making small improvements. So the entrepreneur has to have intelligence, he wants to know what's going on (coughs) in those design firms which are working on the next generation of tools. For instance, in the computer industry, this is going very, very fast. Traditionally, uh, this was not something that would make a revolution in a few years, but we know very well that in the computer uh, industry, the the, uh, method is changing, and they are coming up with new uh, software and new hardware as well, increasing the memory unit, the capacity of the memory unit, and many other little things which an ordinary mortal doesn't know very much about. But the entrepreneur has to know, and and then he anticipates, and he may had an original, uh, original depreciation schedule Mm -hmm. which then he says, oh, sorry, at the time I drew this up, I wasn't aware of this or that or that and I'm going to scrap the schedule and replace it with a new one. I have to depreciate my computer faster than I thought when I first uh, bought it. This, I'm sure, is something that is happening very often nowadays because computer Uh, models and designs and softwares and so on are changing very, very fast. So all this, if you put together, describes the job of the entrepreneur and in particular the marginal entrepreneur. And uh, uh, We have to understand how this interacts with the rate of interest. These are not different chapters in economics; they are interrelated, very, very intimately, and you have to see this and and do things accordingly. So I think I stop here, and we can have an early. We still have ten minutes of the hour, so we can have questions.
1: So um,
0: any questions or comments, clarity, Rudy?
1: One comment. uh, Maybe some people think this is all pretty hairy theory. And that's how I come into this. I'm a practical guy with a machine shop. And uh, for example, when you decide, or I decide to sell my machine and take the bond, well, you lost some of the machine. What about that? But when the interest rates go down, I make a capital gain on my bond. So if I decide to restart the business, I can plow more money in than I took out. So this facilitates this arbitrage. And the other thing is, this depreciation is absolutely 100% correct. My company made money, but we didn't have enough money to put in new machines or really do a wonderful job of bringing it up to speed. And sooner or later, this kicked in. In other words, it wasn't generating
0: enough to to reproduce itself, to renew itself. So you were a marginal entrepreneur yourself. Yes, for years. And and you learned the lesson. So next time next time you can correct (laughs) your mistake. And this is an experience which you have to go through yourself. Well, because if you, you read main, about it in a, uh, in, a, in a book, it's one thing. But live through this life experience that you see your business going down, losing competitiveness. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's your fault, but sometimes it's because the government and the central bank are rigging the interest rate against you. And then you are helpless. But still, there, there is a little leeway you can do something about it yeah. any any more questions
2: Sorry, just in the first lecture I heard that uh, rising interest rate leads to rising prices right? we agree with the statement because this is the statement which was which was said many times when rising interest rate leads to rising prices how can rising interest rates be bad for marginal producers
0: did you hear that? No. If rising interest rates leads to rising prices, how can rising interest rates be bad for the marginal producer? Okay. We are, this is something coming up. I, if you want to read ahead, I, I'm not going to do that today, but uh, I think it's the last lecture, lecture 10... Uh, I gave the title Economic Resonance. I'm going to talk about this, but if you want to read ahead, then. Uh, page 53. Read, page 53. So we're coming to that. We are coming <laughs> with that. Uh, any more questions? Keith?
3: Else has I'll just add to what Rudy said. So you sell the capital equipment and the and you buy the bond that's okay because you are going to make a profit on the bond until the government says oh by the way we're going to take 35% of that profit on the bond (laughs) (laughs) capital gains tax murders the entrepreneur
0: they're usually not that stupid I mean British guilts are tax free from capital gain and uh, well
3: not in the US
1: anyways (laughs) (laughs) okay Okay. the problem with capital gains is a phantom it's the dollar that shrinks so that same piece of equipment that it's worth 100000 of the old dollar. is not worth $200,000. No, say, if, you sell, if you sell the equipment
3: at a loss because it's used and the interest rate went up, and you buy the bond. So you take a loss on the equipment, you buy the bond, then the bond price rises when the interest rate falls. They take a big chunk of your gain, and now you are subpar to go buy the tool at replacement cost, which, of course, is much higher than... So if there wasn't a capital gains tax you might be able to rebuy the equipment. lot easier, that's for sure. Right, but with the capital gains tax, everything the entrepreneur does, the government is taking a big chunk of it and saying, now let's see how you do <laughs> keep, this is all theory which we are talking
2: about. Because capital gains make sure that this theory which we are talking about does not work. You
3: know, the theory works, the capital gains only accelerates the destruction. The capital gains tax only accelerates the destruction of capital. Because anytime you have, anytime you realize a gain, the government takes a big chunk of that. So there are times when you're making a loss, the government says you're on your own and you lost. Every time you're making a gain, the government's taking a chunk of that gain away. So you, what what the professor is saying is, every time the interest rate is rising and falling, there's a loss. And then what the capital gains tax is saying is, and the loss is even bigger than it would otherwise have been.
0: Uh, But bring in the pure entrepreneurial profits because more often than not the capital gains tax cuts the uh, pure entrepreneurial profit, but this is the engine of progress. Could, uh, Could you comment on this, that this is murder, murdering your own future if you tax the pure entrepreneurial profit? When you say pure entrepreneurial profits, I
3: think of two things. Which is, one, while the business is operating, it's generating profit, which is taxed at the uh, income tax rate, which in the United States is currently 35%. So you you have this huge problem, but the other problem is when you're going to investors and saying, invest in my business. The investor is doing his business case and he's multiplying it by whatever he thinks the risk of failure is. Now on top of it, if the investor is going to pay, it's currently 15%, but I think it'll go up to 20% at the end of this year, because Congress isn't going to agree on this. The investor realizes that if if the business fails, he loses 100%. If the business is successful, he only keeps 80% of, of his return. And so at each stage both the, both the investment capital can't grow and the the business can't even grow itself based on its own revenues as much because the government's constantly pulling the capital out in order to consume it in the welfare state. It's murder. Yeah.
0: It's it's pure murder.
3: So then
2: murder then, in your
0: own future.
2: Then the capital then then we are in a we are in a time where it's only capital destruction which is taking place. Because because the governments require more revenues in the future, they don't have revenues. So so the capital gains or whatever tax cannot come down, they can only go up. Right? If the, if the taxation can only go up, then can, it can only lead to capital destruction in the future.
3: Or borrowing can go up if they can't raise taxes. But if the borrowing goes up, it, same it, same kind of it leads lead to the capital here. destruction. Yeah.
2: So the capital in the future years is going to be much, much difficult to come back at the interest rate, which is acceptable to somebody who's putting the capital, because the government is taking away the entire interest rate portion? Is that right? The cost of capital in the future is going to be higher than the cost of
3: capital, which is today, irrespective of the interest rates.
0: I'd say that was pretty fair.
3: Especially for, one other thing I'll say about the entrepreneur, I think when the professor talks about the entrepreneur, he's talking about an established entrepreneur. The startup entrepreneur can't sell bonds. The startup entrepreneur goes to the investors and says, please, pretty please, give me a few pennies. And the the investor basically says, okay, we're going to structure this as a participating preferred stock. So we have the benefit of a bond, in case you don't do that, well basically we can take the assets of the company and then if you do well, we can convert over at some multiple rate of whatever we put in. You know, Fixing a valuation today, getting a multi- multiple of, of whatever capital that we put in. So they participate if, they got, if the company goes up, otherwise not. So the, the real cost of capital to the startup entrepreneur has nothing to do with the interest rate. The 10-year bond in the United States is 2%. That is not what the startup entrepreneur is paying for capital. He's paying 51% equity in his company or something like that. So I, I agree that the, the cost of, of the capital is high, and probably would have to go up, because the risks to the investor going up, the investor is in control. He will not give his hard-earned <laughs> capital away unless he thinks he's getting a decent return.
2: Then, Sandeep would you agree that over three years' time, horizon, equity markets cannot go up? <coughs> no.
1: <laughs> You'll have to do better than that. <laughs> no, no. No. Really? Well, I just wanted to say there's a perverse incentive to debase money, Mm. or so called money paper. Because the more the dollar depreciates, or the more it shrinks, the more capital gains is supposedly brought up. It's not real capital gains, there's no increase in the real value of the enterprise, just the evaluation number. But the government pretends it's it's a real capital gain and taxes it. Mm -hmm. So if if they depreciate the dollar faster, they get more so-called capital gains, Mm -hmm. siphoning away the real
0: wealth. Okay. Uh, All right, now. I think we'll, Hmm? shall we take the break? Hmm? I want to say something about that. Now, we want to bring the two ideas together. The previous lecture was on marginal time preference. This one on marginal productivity of capital and it's the two together which uh, determine what the rate of interest or at least limits the variation of the rate of interest to a narrow uh, relatively narrow range. So again it's the idea of Karl Menger that instead of the one monolithic price, you have two prices, the lower bid and the higher ask price. Same thing here. Instead of a monolithic rate of interest, you think in terms of two, the uh, lower floor and the higher ceiling. And it's the dynamics. you see, it's not a one-dimensional thing. It's now it becomes full three dimensional in in full color, whereas the uh, equilibrium theory of price of uh, supply and demand is a one-dimensional black and white. It's just an oversimplification, which could be all right as a first approach, but when you really want to understand, you've got to go to the three dimensional picture in full color. And that's what Menger's uh, approach does for us. And this is uh, how we understand the uh, very important question. And I am. I'm very happy for one that I could be uh, I could have been part of that, because, as I already explained, there is hundreds of years of prehistory in the theory of interest, lots of competing theories and lots of bloodshed, fratricidal wars between uh, even uh, the sound money movement. Uh, uh, you know, uh, and so on, but I think that the answer is bring in Karl Menger, (coughs) using his methodology you can make peace, and that's the peace. You compromise, it's a synthesis. It's a synthesis between the time preference school and the productivity school of interest and you can accommodate all the different demands which these groups put on the tier of interest. And I find this very, very satisfying, and I'm offering it to you that if you